and welcome back to Music for PhDs. Today we're talking to Jesse Deechsey, whose music is right along the line between classical and jazz. Jesse plays bass, both stand-up and electric, with a bow and without, which makes him super versatile. He's like your rec league hockey goalie, always in demand. Jesse is the principal bassist for Sinfonio Toronto and plays in a bunch of other groups, including his own Catalyst Ensemble. We're going to talk about his beautiful piece, Canmore, which I did a painting to. It's the cover art for this podcast episode, so if you look down at your phone right now, you should see a little mini version of it. We're also going to talk to Dr. Kate about how music affects your emotions and why you like what you like. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. So most people's exposure to the double bass would be in either a jazz or a country or bluegrass setting. You also have kind of the jazz technique of plucking where you would have your fingers pointed almost at the ground and pull the whole string back. Uh, You get a very long sustain. You get a little bit of a growl to the tone. Um, It's a a particular sound. Uh, And that's what you would hear if you went to a jazz club and heard a bass player playing a walking bass line, which is kind of the most idiomatic thing you could hear from a jazz bass player. And bowing is mainly for like classical kind of a setup? Uh, generally speaking, yes. I mean, most people would associate it with that. Uh, it, it's a similar idea to how cellists or violinists would bow. Generally speaking, you will hear bassists play with the bow most frequently in orchestras and, and chamber music. The other setting that most people probably aren't familiar with would be solo repertoire say, Yo-Yo Ma, world-renowned cello soloist. You also have bass players doing that same thing. There aren't as many of them. Uh, Obviously, a little bit more of a niche thing, but that repertoire exists for the bass. But there are other styles of music where they'll use it. Uh, You can get kind of a drone effect certain folk music settings and other other situations where you want the bass to just essentially sustain. I've also heard bass players, even though it's not part of that musical tradition, but I've heard bass players playing in almost like an Indian raga kind of setting, uh, kind of imitate the instruments that they would have that would create that drone effect. So there are bass players finding ways of working themselves into musical traditions that the <laughs> instruments actually come from. What's your, what's your favorite part about playing the bass? Favorite part of playing the bass? I mean, most people, when you ask them that question, will say uh, the versatility that the instrument gives them in terms of the styles of music they can play in. Oh, yeah. We, we just talked about those. <laughs> yeah. So as a bass player, I can, if especially given that I am comfortable on both electric and upright bass, and on upright, I'm comfortable playing pizzicato and with the bow, as well as improvising and reading music on either instrument. Um, That essentially opens up virtually every style of music that we would encounter in North America. But honestly, for me, the number one driving force is the sound. 
and that has been kind of a recent development. But in in the past maybe three or four years, as I have really re-examined how I play the instrument, um, the thing that has me hooked that keeps me in the practice from working is is the sound that I'm able to create. When you get to a point where the sound you're generating is really appealing to you, it just spurs on. It, it, there's no better motivator than that. Basically, I started out as a jazz musician. That's what kind of got me interested in playing the double bass. Uh, prior to beginning that, I, I played the electric bass and I uh, kind of played them both simultaneously, which is very common for jazz bass players to do both. My older brother is a saxophonist and was very interested in jazz playing as well. So in high school, that was what kind of drew me into it. And having an older brother who was involved in playing the bass, which is usually a underrepresented but highly sought after instrument, uh, I kind of got pulled into a lot of gigs far earlier than I really deserved to. So I went to Brandon University for a jazz performance for my undergrad. And uh, I was one of a very small number of bass players there. And so I got to be very active in a lot of different types of ensembles that I would never have been invited to play with in a larger setting. So that's where I started playing with orchestras. And I also became interesting, interested in trying to find the um, kind of crossover or collaborative potential between specifically strings, orchestral strings, and jazz rhythm sections or, or just a jazz sensibility in general. Uh, so to of my undergrad, I started getting into writing four ensembles that brought those two together. Uh, so my final recital of my undergraduate degree was essentially uh, an evening of my own compositions that featured a string quartet with a jazz quartet, uh, you know, bass, drums, piano, and saxophone, uh, and then and then four string players. And that idea has continued to this day. I still that's where it started from. And upon moving to Toronto, I found other people doing similar things. Um, I had started getting a fair amount of work that required somebody to have knowledge of both styles of playing. So it's either situations like a chamber music festival that had a jazz and, and chamber orchestra component where they only wanted to bring in one bass player and they needed someone who could do both or styles of music, uh, original compositions or groups that needed a bass player who could improvise uh, and play chord changes, but also you know do a lot of playing with the bow, which is unusual for jazz players. So I was very, I found those uh, opportunities very rewarding. And then still involved in a lot of jazz projects, uh, still involved in electric bass projects, uh, playing anything from R&B to rock and uh, various other things. So it's a lot, a lot of different stuff. It kind of sounds like you're the guy who's in like 12 bands. A little bit, yeah. a little bit which is not uncommon for bass players, um, but usually 12 bands that have slightly more to do with one another. <laughs> so the Catalyst Ensemble is essentially three string players with four quote unquote jazz musicians, violin, viola, cello, and then myself on bass, 
with piano, drum set, and then we've alternated between vibraphone and guitar as an additional instrument. So I'll have uh, three very skilled orchestral and chamber string players who will play on that side of the group. And then on the other side, I have uh, jazz musicians that I work with in the jazz scene. And I've kind of served as the the kind of go-between where <laughs> I try to bring these communities together and, and make it work. And I myself have to kind of flip-flop between uh, the stylistic approaches of, of those two different types of music, which has been uh, a challenge, but also very rewarding. What would inspire you to compose a piece of music? Like, what would happen in your life that would make you be like, grab a pencil right now kind of thing, or grab your voice recorder on your phone or something like that? Well, most of the time, it's usually a fairly pragmatic thing, as in you have a concert coming up and you need more music. Uh, with jazz musicians, they are almost all expected to compose music. In classical training, you would either train as an instrumentalist or a composer. And there's a very interesting relationship between the two where there's this very deep respect paid from the, in, from the musicians. And it's this sometimes challenging dynamic back and forth where the, the music like, is this sacred thing that can't be changed. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, dynamic. Whereas in jazz, uh, the, com the composition itself is only really the starting point. It's all about the improvisation. Tell me about Canmore. So I listened to this piece before we talked, and definitely in my mind, I have constructed this whole narrative. And I'm really curious mm -hmm. to, to talk to you about it. And I just want to know, like, where, what, what inspired this piece? For me personally, growing up, Canmore was a place that I always visited uh, as part of holidaying. And it was just a very special place for me for a lot of reasons. And the kind of personal backstory to, to that whole component is that my family, when I was probably late elementary school, my parents divorced. Mm -hmm. And so these family trips that started out as the whole family eventually turned into me and my brother and my dad. Uh, and then went on to go to university. So then it was just me and my dad. Uh, and then eventually I went to university and the trip stopped. And I didn't really return to Canmore until I was there as a touring professional musician, you know, a few years later. And uh, what I noticed over those years, and part of it is just you grow up and your perspective changes. You know, you are physically bigger and therefore things that big look smaller and, you know, so on and so forth. But also Canmore itself is an interesting town because of how it relates to uh, the Banff National Park. Canmore is kind of the Wild West, so that they're not regulated in the same way as, uh, as the actual city of Banff is. And so over those, you know, 10 years or so, Canmore has completely changed. I had such vivid memories in my head of what it looked like, and I couldn't see anything that looked familiar. It took days of being in, in town and, and until I saw a building or a street that sparked a memory. <clears throat> so long story short, what, what this piece essentially turned into was that I wanted to find a way to represent this related but kind of inversely related relationship between my own personal history and my family's history mm -hmm. with the, the town of Banff 
uh, as an entity that we're kind of moving in opposite directions. You know, as my family unit started as this, um, you know, it was kind of a big to small kind of relationship and Canmore was the opposite. Right. Uh, but that there is a common thread of both entities being altered and changed to a point where they were almost unrecognizable from where they started. Mm-hmm. And so compositionally, I, th- I thought that, you know, not only was there a, there a compelling narrative behind that, but compositionally, I thought there was a lot of potential there. So I essentially had these two primary themes, one that started very sparse. That was the opening theme, and it kind of develops into something much more busy, much more complicated. And the other theme went the opposite direction where it started with this very big, lush uh, kind of orchestral sound. And then it finishes uh, to the very end of the piece where that the theme is played uh, actually in the bass part. So it's me playing the, the at the very end completely unaccompanied, this very sparse, very kind of a, almost a cold sound with no vibrato that is totally exposed and ends with this high harmonic. And that's the last thing that you hear. It does have a a very melancholic feel. Yeah, and it's just, you know, the way that certain combinations of notes make us feel. I mean, no matter how academic you try to with an approach, that there is always that component of certain sounds make us feel a certain way. And that when you create a piece, you're almost kind of creating this narrative of what you're trying, the kind of emotional response you're trying to evoke from Mm -hmm. the audience at any given time. Uh, and hopefully you do that responsibly. <laughs> so before I talked to Jesse for this interview, I had listened to Canmore a bunch of times. And it really made me think of the mountains. It starts with this kind of warm, cozy feel, and then it gets sparser and colder. I had an image of a climber leaving the town and going up high until the air thins out. I thought about the moon and how close it can feel to the mountaintops. So I wanted to use a lot of grays and deep violets to get at this kind of alpine moonscape that I had in my head.
So when I paint to music, I do it really fast. I start and stop with the sound. And Jesse's piece is only about six minutes long. So I wasn't really thinking about the story he told me or even the story I had kind of made up. I'm not trying to illustrate the music so much as I'm trying to capture the experience of me listening to that music. And that can change depending on if I'm at a concert or listening on headphones or even how many times I've already heard it. More on that later from Dr. Kate. What I mostly picked up as I was painting was this sense of urgency kind of chasing me around the page. You can check it out. There is a high-res version of the painting up on my website, and the link for that is in the show notes. But back to Jesse and my favorite part of the interview, lightning round. So chocolate or chips? Chocolate. What's a book that you're currently reading? I just finished uh, The Inner Game of Tennis, which is a fantastic read and a must for anyone involved in not only music, uh, even though it's about tennis, but any artistic endeavor uh, and is as much about how we learn and perform under pressure as it is about sports. Uh, what's the favorite room in your house? Well, I live in Toronto, so we don't have very many rooms. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> my favorite room is actually not in our house, which is my practice studio, which is oh. most of my time. Cool. So do you have like a like a garden shed or something? Or where, where's your studio? No, we, we live in a stacked townhouse condo in, in downtown Toronto, so uh, I don't I can't really fit my base here. Uh, so I rented uh, office space, uh, just kind of a five minute walk. Oh, nice! A little secondary house. Yeah. Uh, what's the scariest thing you've ever done? Scariest thing I have ever done was uh, try out as a walk on player for the University of Toronto football team, and then get. Uh, be given a spot on the team and walk into the locker room for the first time. Awesome. So what's next for you? Do you have any upcoming concerts or um, releases you want to talk about? It sounds like you have actually a lot of new concerts coming up. Yeah, there's a lot of concerts coming up. No new releases at this point yet, but um, I start up with my new position as principal bass with the, uh, with Symphonia Toronto. Cool. Uh, yeah, so that'll be lots of fun uh, working on uh, performances for the Catalyst Ensemble in the in the coming months, and I have a couple of new projects that I'm trying to get started. One will be uh, a tribute to the Dave Holland Quintet, and uh, in addition to that, I'm going to be starting a R&B project, uh, playing electric bass. Uh, that is very much in its early stages, but lots of different things coming up. So once again, links to all of Jesse's music and upcoming concerts are up on my website. So we've talked about music and emotion and narrative. And now Dr. Kate Enerson is back to shed some light on the science of feeling music. So one thing Jesse and I talked about is how certain sounds evoke certain emotions in listeners. So Dr. Kate, is that true? Do minor chords always make you feel sad, for example? That's a great question. For lots of people who've grown up listening to music in a place like North America, 
we do associate major music with happy songs and minor music with sad songs. Researchers think that some of that is because of the way your ear hears sounds. So major intervals, like a major third or a perfect fifth, tend to be consonant. So they're really nice to listen to. Whereas intervals like a minor third in minor music tend to be dissonant, and they're less pleasant to listen to. But that's not the whole story. Some musical cultures don't follow the major happy, minor sad rules the same way we do. So, for example, in some Spanish music or Slavic music, happy songs can be written in minor keys. And if you don't know the musical tradition, lots of us would assume those are sad songs, but they can be really joyful. Kind of like wedding music or birthday songs or something like that? Exactly. In some cultures, it wouldn't be weird for happy celebratory songs to be in minor keys. And some cultures don't even use major and minor as a way to organize their music at all. So, for example, in Indonesia, gamelan music uses other scales. They're called pelog and slendro. And pelog is really interesting because to lots of Western people, the way the notes are organized sounds kind of minor. So for people from Indonesia, listening to music made up of those notes would sound happy or joyful. Exactly. It really comes down to your experiences and what kind of systems your culture uses. But systems like major keys and minor keys are just one factor in how music can make you feel. Sometimes your reaction to music is as simple as hearing something familiar. What do you mean by listening to something familiar? Well, lots of music you don't hear just once. You might hear it over and over. And it's true for music, as well as lots of other things, that something you've heard before, or seen before, or experienced before, you generally like more than something that's new and different. Psychologists call this the mere exposure effect. And as long ago as 1903, scientists could show that people liked music more when they heard it repeatedly. The music we like is all about repetition. So your favorite song might have a chorus that comes back over and over in the same piece. Or your favorite artist might have a bunch of pieces with a familiar style or lyrics in common. And the example of familiarity that most of us would think of first is hearing the same piece of music over and over and over. For sure. So when something becomes a big radio hit, uh, all of a sudden you start to hear it everywhere. And before you know it, you know all the words and you love it. <laughs> That's right. The first time you hear it, you might think a song is kind of strange or it doesn't really appeal to you. And then it gets popular and you hear it a bunch more times and suddenly you're tapping your feet or singing along to the radio. But this hear it more, like it more pattern doesn't go on forever. There's a catch. When you hear something for the first time, you haven't learned to love it yet. The more you hear it, the more you like it. But this curve is more like an upside down U. So eventually, once you've heard something too many times, the novelty wears off and the repetition gets annoying. I feel that same way about pretty much every John Mayer song that's ever been on the radio. Ah, uh, so you know exactly what I mean. 
So what we haven't told our listeners yet is that Dr. Kate and Jesse are actually married. So Kate, does that mean that you love Jesse's music because you hear it all the time? Or are you on the other side of that curve where you've heard it too much? <laughs> Tricky question, Sunita. Um, I'm lucky because I really love the acoustic bass. Uh, so the novelty of that definitely has not worn off yet for me. On the other hand, like any professional musician, Jesse has to practice a lot. So the key for us is that he has a practice space that's not our teeny tiny house. And sometimes the key is that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Thank you so much again to Jesse and Kate for taking part. It was super fun to have a married couple on board as guests. I don't know if you noticed, but they did contradict each other a little bit. If you would like to hear more of Jesse's music or learn more about the research that Kate talks about, I have links up on my website. You can also check out a larger version of the painting that I did to Jesse's piece. So if you enjoyed listening, learning, and looking at some artwork, please hit subscribe, leave a review, and stay tuned for the next episode. I'll be talking to Harry Staphylakis. Harry is a composer who's based in New York. He's from Montreal, and he's a total metalhead. So we're going to go from jazz meets classical to metal meets classical. I'm super excited, and I hope you join us for the next episode of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. Mm-hmm.